Hi, this is the Life in Bomb City podcast brought to you by Emerald College's Social and Behavioral Sciences Department. I'm Aaron Favor. And I'm Dr. Beth Rodriguez. And we are recording in the FM90 and Panhandle PBS studios invading their space. Uh, thank you for listening. Today we've got with us uh, Mr. Paul Harpole. Um, uh, we had uh, the distinguished opportunity to get to spend some time with, with Paul um, a couple of uh, weeks back. He was the mayor of Amarillo from 2011 to 2016, served on the council prior to that for years. And with everything that's going on downtown, he has a lot of input. Uh, Paul, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, what brought you to public service, and what you're doing? So uh, probably what brought me to public service was a series of things. My upbringing was with eight brothers and sisters in Denver. And uh, at the end of high school, I knew I wasn't prepared or ready to go to college, but um, <clears throat> decided to go in the Army, went in the Army, served uh, for three years, two and a half years, went to Vietnam a couple of times, came back, and decided, hey, it was time for me to go to college. I had a young medic that worked with me. I was on a uh, medical evacuation helicopter. The young medic changed me totally by saying to me one day, hey, you could go to college and not go to trade school. I was going to become an airframe and power plant mechanic. And uh, he said, you're just wasting your time not doing that. He said, you can concentrate better than anybody I've ever met. Well, it just shocked me. So I wrote my sister. She was a teacher at that point. Our father had passed away when I was 15. She was 17. The youngest was three. And uh, so we all went to college. Um, eight of us graduated college, three of us. The girls were the smart ones. They got advanced <laughs> degrees. And so I went to take some remedial classes in Albuquerque. As soon as I got out, I'd lived in Denver, moved away from where the old influence of my friends were still there, and moved to Albuquerque and did great with remedial classes, got A's, and then got into college. When I got out of college, I was working my way through college on the GI Bill, but working at a place like Home Depot or Lowe's. They didn't pay much for me to continue there. I'd done some studies for how they could expand as a senior project, but there really wasn't much compensation in that company. So I went into the car business and I never looked back. I became a manager in an automobile business, ended up moving to Al from Albuquerque to Amarillo in 1982. I was 32 years old and um, was the general manager of John Chandler Ford until 2009 when we sold it. Um, so as I was doing that, I got involved in United Way and Boy Scouts and church activities and other things and really began to meet a lot of people. That and our business really required that I meet a lot of people, and I enjoyed that. I enjoy people a lot. One day in 2005, some people came to me and asked if I'd run for city council. Long story short, I won that contest um, and was served on the council for two years but we were really delving into what we could do to revitalize some parts of Amarillo that were older and becoming pretty decrepit and really costing with no return. We had to redo utilities, redo all sorts of underground things that were very expensive, but we were losing the businesses there and losing any ability to earn back our investment through property tax increases. Ta increases in downtown had not existed for 30 years. Property values were stagnant. Growth was stagnant. 
So we started looking at that, and from that we had some studies done, um, looking at what it would take to change downtown, and thereby change neighborhoods around downtown eventually. But we knew the core, the heart of it was downtown, and some folks before me had really studied this and looked at it and brought some of those things to the table, and we started to look at that. So anyway, I got off the council after two years because actually I had uh, my in-laws and some other people, my brother, my boss, all not doing very well physically, all elderly or sickly. And so I got off because I just couldn't do it with my family. But I stayed very involved in the downtown Amarillo Inc. group and the tax increment reinvestment group. So I did that for four years. And when that was finished, those folks in my family that took some attention had passed. And so I decided, hmm, I think I really want to see this get finished. And um, ran for mayor. There were 11 of us running. Um, mayor McCart was not going to run again. And uh, so I won without a runoff. And uh, so the first time I ran, I got 78% uh, of the vote. I was real happy with that. I didn't have to have a runoff. The other 10 shared the rest of the remaining vote. It was kind of a a, a good thing that we had some unity and, and really what we thought was sort of a mandate to do things and work on this projects that we'd been setting up with downtown. Second time I ran, I got 89% of the vote. I thought that was great. And then the third time I ran, I got 55% of the vote. And I kind of <laughs> decided, hmm, <laughs> we had not really communicated as well as we probably thought we were. So at any rate, um, my involvement really came from a desire to see our town grow and do better. And, you know, you're not really paid as the mayor of Amarillo. You get $10 a week if you show up for the meeting. And if you don't show up, you don't get the 10 bucks. Dang. So. Hey, I mean, that's a Taco Villa burrito. Yeah, yeah. well, I, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's been really fun to be involved. And so I was really directly involved for about 12 years. And um, there was a, innumerable number of people that got involved in this and really got behind it. I'll never forget one Saturday morning, we were going to have a, a um, work session down at the Civic Auditorium, and they invited the public to come and look at all these different plans about what could happen downtown. Take some of the raw data, take some of the raw studies, and figure out what was the best way to do this. And they invited families to come in. And I still remember our current mayor, Ginger Nelson, and her husband, Kevin, and their two very young kids at that point coming in and others around the tables working on little projects about how would this work in downtown and really an education process, but a thought development process too. And um, so I must admit that when I first got on the council, I was dead set against a ballpark and a hotel in downtown Amarillo <laughs> because I thought it would just not work. From a business standpoint, as a business person, I thought it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. I saw the depleting downtown. I saw people moving out. I didn't know really what you could do to fix it, but I thought it was not uh, good to just back off and let it die. And so I, I got involved with the, when I was a councilman in five and six, 2005, 2006, I got involved with the Convention of Visitors Bureau on the chamber. That was my board assignment. And really, I would credit a couple of people. Um, Greg Bynum, who runs the, the uh, Education Credit Union, 
and Jerry Holt, who was in charge of convention and visitors, turning my thoughts around and showing what the value and what could learn. I felt really like it wouldn't work until I learned some new things. And since then, I've really felt differently that, wow, we've got to do something with downtown. And they gave me numbers and raw data. We had a hotel study done out of a group in Chicago, Herndon. They talked about what a hotel would do downtown. At, at the point that we were at then in 2005, there were 13 rooms in downtown Amarillo that you could rent or stay at. And my wife wouldn't stay at any one of them, so thereby I wouldn't either. It was a mess down there. There was nothing down there you could stay at or be proud to stay at. Remember, that Marriott that's in the Fisk Building didn't exist. Right. That became the first tiers project. I became involved in the tiers and was, and was the um, assistant to Richard Brown. He was the chairman. I was the vice chairman, I guess, of the tiers board and did that for about five years. And we really started to see some investors and some development come in. But um, the one thing that didn't change was the hoteliers universally said, we will not come to your town. We continuously said, why? We tried to work angles about, well, we've got this great civic center. We've got this growth. We're doing all these things. They said, no, you need an outdoor entertainment venue. And we said, well, we're going to redo the civic center. And they said, nope, that's not going to draw any new people. That's going to draw the people that are currently coming. Mm -hmm. You need an outdoor venture, and you need to be in a sports venue to do that. We, for years, thought that it would be an independent baseball league. And thankfully, through some work that was done seven or eight years ago, where we called, quietly called the Texas League and inquired. The then current city manager, Jared Atkinson, got involved and talked to them over and over about what could we do just in case we could get more than independent league. But we really never thought we could get more than independent league until some local business people put together a package to entice the folks. Okay, I have a question. I know people are wondering, because this is like the biggest argument. Sure. Why would we have a baseball team? We already had a baseball team, and it didn't work. And can you, so, they, so I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between what we had before and what we are have currently. Well, it's a total, it, it, there's a, a lot of differences. Independent is great baseball, but it's not, league baseball so in league baseball the team in our case the padres will pay the salaries of all of the baseball players here it doesn't fall on the heads of the people down there managing that the padres will pay it they'll pay the housing they'll pay everything else honestly when i was mayor i'd get people calling and it was a county stadium it was at potter county but they'd call me as mayor and say you know we want to get our bills paid for our hotel these guys the old league hadn't paid the bills hadn't taken care of certain responsibilities in town and, and so they operate on a much thinner edge of financial stability than the major leagues do Absolutely. when the citizens here were able to switch it and get a a league team it made an incredible difference. We had taken a vote, actually, with the new new council. My last council that I served with was dead set against this. Dr. Eads and I were the only ones that were for it. But they did have the foresight to say, we need to have a vote on this. And so although it was a resolution, it really wasn't a binding vote. We had a vote on the stadium, and it won. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't win by a large number, but it won. So we proceeded with a $33 million stadium until um, people like 
Richard Ware, Jerry Hodge, Glenn Parkey, uh, others. Um, Bill Gilliland was one of the people that really worked hard on that. But there were dozens of people working on this, but those people took a package to the baseball team. Now, they had been here. Um, the father who started this company that owns our baseball team and his son, DJ, and uh, the general managers of the team came here and met with myself and, the, and some people on uh, the committees, so AEDC and other people, about what we could do about baseball. And they loved our attitude. They loved the growth that was happening in Amarillo, but they weren't quite sure. And finally, after we went through a long dialogue with them about what was transpiring in all of our downtown and all of our city and how regional we are. You know, a lot of people don't realize that we serve one half a million people in Amarillo. We're 200,000, 250,000 in the MSA in the surrounding area with Canyon and all that. But if you go out, you reach about a half a million people before they make a choice to go to other markets like Denver, Oklahoma City, or Albuquerque. So you reach up into the, the whole Oklahoma panhandle, a little bit of Kansas, over into western Oklahoma and into eastern New Mexico, you reach all those places and they come here. You go south, sure, they share, we share that with Lubbock. But in the other areas, we are a half million people that mm -hmm. do things here. Well, the baseball people started to realize, boy, this is a regional market. This is something like not many places in America have. We have all these people coming to this town. And literally, if you go up to Periton today and you talk to them for a little bit, I've been up there and talked to them and I was at an event for veterans and they were talking to me afterwards and two couples came up to me independently and said, we're driving into Amarillo this weekend. We're going to see a movie and have a, have dinner and then come home. And I thought, gee, it was two hours to get up here. Gee, it's going to be a couple hours for a movie, a couple hours for dinner. Um, they didn't think twice about that. And so if we maintain a vibrant entertainment section, we will continue to draw people. They won't choose to go to other places. Occasionally, they might go past us down to the Rangers. They might go to Oklahoma City occasionally. But really, if we have this here, it's going to grow to something unbelievable. So those hoteliers that told us, you have to put an outdoor venue in, changed our view because we thought we'd do the Civic Center first. And really, the succession that's come up now came through a lot of planning and study and and from investors that were willing to put huge amounts of money into our city. A lot of people don't know this, but you know, we own that hotel. The city does, free and clear. It's really an interesting arrangement. We gave the land. So for the city to accept the hotel on their land, it had to be paid for. The investors in that hotel paid upfront for that hotel through lending agreements. And all they had is collateral was a 80-year lease to operate the hotel. So they paid up front $44 million to build that hotel. And the only return they had from that was to be able to operate it for 80 years. I've talked talk to other developers in other parts of the country from places I've been like Albuquerque and Denver and Dallas and, and Betsy Price and Fort Worth. And it's really an unusual situation. Let me tell you, the Chuck Patel, the new Crest group that runs that hotel has done an unbelievable amount for the development of our downtown. They were the ones that built the Marriott out of the Fisk building. They came with 104 rooms. They did an incredible job. That was the one of the anchor jobs that we wanted with this tier zone. So let me explain tier zone if I can briefly. 
tier zone is the tax increment reinvestment zone. Once we decided that these hoteliers that came and talked to us in these studies were right, that these study groups were right, that we had to do an outdoor venue and had to then do a civic center and do all these things, we really centered on, okay, we've got to have a tool that the state of Texas gives us. We have to have that operating. It's called a tier zone. So here's what happens. All the values in town town are looked at in this zone. And the zone goes from Washington to the railroad tracks, east and west. North and south, it goes from the north railroad tracks to the freeway. That's the tier zone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all the values were set there. And any increase in the values that increase the taxes would be reinvested there. All the current taxes remain going where they're going, mm -hmm. but any increase. But the only way you get an increase is if private developers come in and build something there. So, uh, and there's exceptions, but all of the downtown rebuilds raises the value of property. For a period of about 30 years, there'd been no increase in downtown properties. There'd really been a decrease There'd been not much increase. And so finally, with this, we're seeing increases that are incredible in the property values downtown. Now, the critics say, oh, you're making a few people richer down there. Totally wrong, because there's over 1,000 independent people that own properties inside the tier zone. 1,000 different people or entities that own that property. It's not. Certainly, I hope it does help a handful of people. But it doesn't stop there. It helps every owner of every building and every home in that area as they see properties that were deteriorating with no hope for a future now become centerpieces for our community. We knew we had to redo utilities, and now we have a reason that we're going to get money back for having done those because we see the increase in values. Uh, first of all, I wanted to, I wanted to point out uh, something that you remarked on a little bit earlier on. Uh, that you changed your mind. Oh, I did. It's important. It's so important I to did. have an open mind whenever you better you're... be open. There is so much information that said what I was thinking going in, but I was open to looking and learning. But I had strong opinions when I went in, so I wasn't just going to lay down and say, okay, it's all right, walk on me. I'm going to change my view. They convinced me that it was different. I looked at the empirical data about what it was, looked at the studies, looked at what it had done in other towns. I went and visited some other towns on my own and saw what it had done and realized the fallacy in my first impression of this. There's uh, something really important, I think, historically about something that you just now said, which is that, you know, not only when you, when you're, when you become open to change and you do have you do have very strong opinions. I have very strong opinions. Doctor sure. Beth has very strong opinions, um, but being able to listen to people and listen to what their what their ideas are and how that can enrich enrich our own visions and and kind of bring us together and put us on the same side. Uh, Winston Churchill said that uh, those who never change their mind never change anything. Yeah, and. I, I have a tendency to believe exactly that. So there's a lot of people that, for example, are, are big critics of the, the tax investment reinvestment zones. Um, uh, you know, sorry, that's, tax increment reinvestment zones. Yeah, the tax increment deal only changes the flow of taxes on new values that never existed before. So it doesn't do anything. We knew values were going down downtown, and there were a few smatterings of growth down there that offset it to about a zero growth rate. But that isn't sustainable. You can't do that. And when you see whole blocks being torn down, when before the tiers was started, 
Polk Street had its heyday, and that moved out to the suburbs as all the malls and other things were built. But when the tier started, 70% of the first floor of every business on Polk Street from 10th to 3rd Street was vacant. There was nothing there. And so now if you go down to Polk Street and see what the vibrancy is and see what the future plans, the, the idea is, you know that middle lane where all you, we call it the beer truck lane because that's all <laughs> it's ever parked there? Occasionally FedEx stops there. That eventually with the right funding, if we get it from Texas and we do it ourselves, the plan is that that would disappear and five feet extra of sidewalk would be added to Polk on both sides. Thereby, if you think about uh, restaurant venues being able to have cafe tables out there or bookstores having book racks. It would just be like downtown Albuquerque or downtown Denver or downtown Fort Worth where they've had these expansions and this growth. Are there like specific places that you guys are trying to maybe or that we are trying to like model after downtown or is it you no, know, just a well, whole it, new? There is and there isn't. We, we have our own personality for downtown in Amarillo, and it's really done well. And the people that have not been here for 15 years and come back and see it, they just say, wow, this is great. Look at that street. Look at that street. So we want to maintain our personality, but we will have, obviously, we don't want to reinvent the wheel if we know how well it was done in other areas. So we'll take some, some of the um, ideas and inspirations from other cities and do that you know baseball been around pretty hard and heavy <laughs> since the 1880s and uh even before and we're just taking that idea and enriching it but when people see i was had the privilege to tour that the other day with a group of people to see what was going to happen and it's just going to be incredible when people start to see the little venues yes i was going to say uh, whenever whenever we were down there visiting yeah you pointed out you said Look right there, Aaron. And I said, uh, okay. So I looked over there and you said, right there, you can watch the baseball game and enjoy a, enjoy a meal or yep. you know, a, a beverage of your there's, choice. There's actually about 12 places they're going to keep open where you can rent them for the evening or do things like that. There's going to be the steady seats. And, you know, think about it. So about 7,000 seats and 70 games, plus the other multi-event center, multi-use event center, the, the concerts and other things. But with just the baseball, it creates 490, a half a million more people going downtown to do something, watch baseball, and they might go to a restaurant, and they might go to... They might stay the night. They might <laughs> stay the night. They might do other things. So it's just going to be exciting. And what happens then is that spills over to the surrounding neighborhoods. Developers come in. If you want proof of that, you can go anywhere from, from Grand Junction, Colorado, to Denver, to Albuquerque, to Oklahoma City. In Oklahoma City, I used to go there every two weeks in the auto business to an auction. North of Bricktown, you wouldn't walk there. You, you'd need a guard or a dog or somebody to go with you because it was nasty up there. Now there's over 3,000 condo apartment units, 3,000 north of Bricktown. Besides having all that growth around Bricktown, there's probably... Well, I know there were 38 restaurants. Jenny and I, my wife and I, went over there and celebrated an anniversary a couple of years ago and just stayed at the Skirvin, the downtown hotel. And then we walked to this. We thought we'd be driving. We walked to the stadium. We walked around, and I got a, a list from somebody that had a downtown. There were 38 restaurants that you got to wait in line for three or four minutes at each place to get in to eat because they were full. There were people everywhere. They were all having fun. It was everybody of every age. 
it was older people that normally, and, and they were some going to the baseball game and some weren't. There's some funny numbers and some interesting things that make you think about baseball. Did you know that when people are leaving a stadium like we'll have, that over 50% of them don't know what the score was? They go there with their kids, their grandkids. They go there to have fun, to be entertained. But they could care less what the score is, but they go back mm -hmm. because they've had so much fun. I was talking to an elderly lady who had that exact experience down in Dallas with their grandkids. It's just the nature of us to be social and to have fun. Yeah. So I graduated from OU, so I was in Norman. Oh. And we would go to Oklahoma City, and you wouldn't hang out, really. Because no. there was really no – it was before Bricktown. Like, Bricktown was just starting. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it was to the point where they were getting the water canal and rats were everywhere. That was, it was, so nobody was going. I missed that part. Right? <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You didn't want to be there. But we, like my family and I, we've gone multiple times, gone to the Thunder Games. We've done all that stuff. And that's exactly what happens. You go, you stay, you eat, you go to the game, you come back. And you know what? We're already here, so we might as well just walk around and see what's going right. on. And it is just amazing. Um, another place is Round Rock. Right out yeah. of sight of Austin. Absolutely. I have a really good friend who lives there. And we the very first time we visited, it was, eh, you know, Round Rock. It's just like on the outside of Austin. Then they got their baseball. And now it has grown. Yeah. Unbelievable. And it's, I mean, it's just something that we've seen happen over and over. So I don't know why people would be so against it. Oh, you here. know, I don't think many people are totally against it. And and I actually jokingly tell people when they say, I just would never go there. I'd never spend the whatever. It's $6 for the base ticket. Oh, God. Six bucks for the base ticket to go sit on the, and you can spend a lot more than that, but it's six bucks. So I tell them, well, that's okay, because there's only 7,000 seats, and there's 200,000 of us here. <laughs> so really, you can't go. And then they kind of look at me, and I say, no, you, well, you could go, but <laughs> you got to have a smile on your face if you go to a baseball game. Exactly. Mom, Dad, Apple Pie, Cracker Jacks. And yeah. <laughs> All that. Yeah. So it has a very important element of social cohesion. It it's does. a it's a tool to bring the, the community Absolutely. together and center it. Specifically in downtown Amarillo. Uh why why is downtown Amarillo the center of the Texas panhandle? Well, so let me give you an example. When I was first getting involved in this, Bell was talking about bringing a bunch of engineers up here from Fort Worth. They refused. They came. They looked. They said, <laughs> I can't have my family there. Now those same people come and look, those people that are going to inject a lot of resources into our community. And they say, wow, that is cool. Wow. Look at downtown. So think about some things that have changed. When the tier zone started, we started backing projects. Center City for quite a while has had a facade program where if you put up $20,000 to fix your front of your business, they'll add 10,000 to it. And they've been able to parlay a lot more than that. So you put 10000 in, they'll give you up to 10000 But most people put twenty or 30000 in to get to 10000 And they add to the front of their building. Now, if you look at the design standards for downtown, they're different than anywhere else. It doesn't apply exactly where the housing is downtown, Plymouth Eccles. It's not as, as, there aren't as many requirements there. But there are requirements over the rest of downtown that you must put in landscaping, lights. Now, you don't have to do that in the housing areas. There was some sense worked into these, these <laughs> uh, deals. But, but in the commercial areas downtown, you've got to make sure the sidewalks are good. 
you've got to have landscaping, you put in benches, you put in lights, you put in things that make it commonly good. And, and in areas where it is conducive, you can put in the bullers, you put in the, um, there's different names for them, but it's where it's just a ramp going off and the corner comes out a little farther and it cuts out two lanes that, that walkers have to walk across, for instance, crossing Buchanan. You can go out further and you reach a safety zone easier. And when you've got a bunch of kids going to a baseball game, it's important that you watch for things like that. You know, people have said, well, you back in the day, they said, well, you can't do that. There's so much going on down there and there's more crime. First of all, that wasn't true. Crime was higher in other areas of town. But it is dramatic when you're down there and no one's around. In every city we studied, as they grew downtown, those problems took care of themselves. And so there will be more policing, obviously, because there's more people. There'll be more trash cleanup and other things because there's more people. There'll be all the things that will make it better. And, uh, and you know, the controversial step right now because it's in place is the parking. We, it costs money to build a garage. It costs money to build a parking lot at Westgate Mall. That's passed on to you in the goods you buy at Westgate Mall. Whether you know it or not or believe it or not, it is factored into the rents when they say this is going to take X number of parking places to service this place. It's true in Georgia. Now, obviously, there's not a cost to park there, but it costs the person in the, the tenant in on Georgia or the tenant at the mall. It costs us to have parking places downtown as we grow this. And it's, there's going to be a lot of relief from that. It's only uh, weekdays during work hours. It's designed so it'll rotate traffic in and out of those businesses. It's designed so that it will cover some costs for parking and the support mechanism needed for parking downtown. And it doesn't go much farther than about three blocks from the stadium. And it's back to the normal parking restrictions that are anywhere. There, I was downtown at a, in the embassy suites uh, last week. And I got to see, first of all, I got to meet the general manager of the team. Great. Oh, great guy. He is. I got to meet his <laughs> wife. His wife was working in the merchandise. She works. She, that's her job. She works in the merchandise. Yeah. Shop. And I got to look at all the cool merchandise. And I was, I was looking at the, I think they're Columbia. I think they're maybe Columbia sweatshirts yeah. or something like that. They're, they're really nice. They're good. Point. So, and they, uh, they look like they're really comfy. So, um, but uh, as I was kind of sitting there, I was looking around, I saw the living wall. Um, and I was, there was it's a, unbelievable. there's a place in the back where you, where there's going to be art, uh, and art exhibits that's going to, you know, that are going to be, uh, rotating out every three months or so, something along those lines. So explain and the living wall. A lot of people, it's like 3000 plants. It's three, like 3000 plants and they're designed in these little intricate ways. And they've got, it's, it's, it's so, a wall. it's a wall of life is what it is. And <laughs> it's cool. I don't, I don't know the specifics of how they keep it up, but it's, but it's really an intriguing. They have a group that come in and tends those, and there's drip systems up there, and then they also, the people that come in to maintain them, spray them. They've done a great job. Did you see the, the waterfall inside the Yes, yeah, the waterfall. Kids love great. going over to touch that, and there's yeah. really water flowing down. Yeah, it doesn't even look, it doesn't look like it should be real. No, it doesn't. It's, a, it's an optical illusion almost. <laughs> but uh, but, I, but I, we also had a couple of people that, we're walking in and they just kind of cruised in and I saw some old friends of mine and I said, Hey, how you doing? And, uh, and I said, so what are y'all doing here? They said, well, we came to get merch for the sod poodles. And I said, really? Y'all came, where'd y'all come from? They said from, from across town. 
and they're excited about opening day. Oh, I know. So I think, I wonder how many people are just excited. How many uh, season tickets have we already sold? Well, I think there's 7,000 some seats in the stadium, and I understand that the season tickets are all basically sold. They did not sell, they would not sell every seat that way. They want tickets available for walk-up, and there's places for parties, several. There's places for small parties and big parties, so you can rent those on a daily basis for a game. You can also go in and rent the whole darn stadium for an event. Um, I think one of the churches is having a, a sunrise service there. And uh, you could rent it for really many different things. They will be in charge of renting it themselves, the team, to get revenue for things like concerts and other things. The city has a certain number of days that they can use it or rent it or, or do things with it too. Obviously with the real grass, this is what you get when you're in the big leagues. And uh, with the real grass, they're going to be careful of that. They've got a cover they can put over it. I'm not sure exactly how that works. They can have different events there. So it's going to open up a huge number of events. And, you know, hopefully people will see the value of all this and support the council, the city, really uh, respond to rebuild our civic center next. And those things together with the hotel, you know, we're getting, we're getting another hotel downtown already. And without really any incentives, it's the Barfield building. It's 110 rooms, I believe of a very luxurious Marriott. It may be that businesses, clients, attorneys, other people would stay there. I don't know if I would take that expensive a room, <laughs> but, but you know, there's plenty of options now. And what we were missing in town is kind of counterintuitive. We were missing the better hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. That's what we didn't have. And now the desire is to go in. And even at the embassy downtown, the price for that is less than other towns like Dallas or Denver or Albuquerque. You go in and get a similar hotel, it's going to cost you a whole lot more than it does here. Okay, I have another question for you. Okay, so we know that we have downtown building up, which is so exciting because it has changed. Like, it's changed. I, I hadn't been there like in a month, and I drove by, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, it looks so different. It's amazing. But then um, we also have stuff building on the other side of town. Absolutely. And a lot of people feel like if you're supporting downtown, then you don't support this because it's taking away from each other. And I just kind of want you to speak to that. Because sure. So Perry Williams is doing the town square development out by Sansi. And I've talked to him about this over and over. He's very supportive of downtown. He used to have his offices in the bottom of the Happy State, or in one of the floors at Happy State Bank Building. And we talked about it because he develops all over town. But, but that town square is where he's put a huge amount of investment in. And he's all in favor of downtown because growth begets growth. All boats rise as the tide goes up. You, it's just, it's a... It's a great community to be growing in when we're growing at a phenomenal rate right now. There were predictions for 2000 to 2010 and then 2010 to 2020 that we would, in one of those decades, we could grow as much as 37,000 people in that decade. 25,000, 22,000 was normal before that, but our town is growing. We can't deny that. And so if we don't manage that growth, it manages us. If we don't take care of that and get ahead of it, it takes care of itself and it isn't done as well. I can point out things that weren't done as well. We've made errors as the city grew, but we're trying to get ahead of those and, and do a good job of taking care of the old parts too. So the idea of downtown is that as that center gets developed, that developers come in as they, we were talking about it, Oklahoma City, Denver, 
I was in Grand Junction, couldn't believe what had happened up there. I didn't think about I'd be looking at a revitalized downtown. But all the areas around it are revitalized too, and that's what we hope and and we will incentivize and work on. I'm sure the city will. But San Jacinto, so what borders that? Well, Route 66, 6th Street, all of that could be developed more. What could happen in the North Heights and what could happen in San Jacinto? If you look at the difference on 10th Street going east, after you go under the bridge towards Ross and towards Grand, it's changed dramatically. There's all kinds of more business. Did you know that on Emerald Boulevard, from basically from uh, Hughes Street over to Grand, there's 71 franchise businesses that are things like AutoZone and Pizza Hut and things like that. And had we had a tiers zone there, we would have been reinvesting money from that increased value there. We have to look 20, 30 years ahead. I moved here in 1982 from Uncoulter Street, south of 45th. It was dirt. It was a dirt road. There was nothing there. Nothing. It was a dirt road. That progressed and got, you know, got paved, started to grow a little bit. But honestly, right now, 25, 30 years later is when it's really starting to fill out. So it, there's a time gap between putting in a neighborhood and the businesses that follow. And that's what the city finances. They finance that by putting in utilities, police, enough to take care of all that. But you've got to get a sales tax return because property tax that the city gets, you know, people look at their tax bill and they think, oh, man, my taxes are high. Cut out the part that the city gets. City gets 15% in one county and 17% of your total tax bill in the other county. A large portion of it is for education. That's great. But let's if you're going to throw rocks at the city for taxes, understand the real numbers. Our city is the lowest of our size in the state of Texas. And, and you know, I campaigned all three times on we got to raise taxes some. I don't think it's wise to keep it where we – because here's what happens – so it costs right now $100,000 to repave a street an inch thick. You see that on the arterials. If you let that go, and that's supposed to be done every 7 to 10 years, if you let that go, you have to rebuild the street. We're on a rotation of about 25 years between doing those now because we don't have enough tax money. Now, the voters helped with that. They put $90 million towards roads. It touches about a third of what we mm -hmm. needed. It touches about a third. And so... If you don't do that, that 100000 you know what it costs to rebuild that same mile? No idea. Over a million dollars. So if you don't take care of it every seven to ten years, you could spend ten times as much. Go look at Tulsa. Tulsa went through this about two decades ago. They switched to a strong mayor form of government. We don't have that. We have a great form of government here. They switched to it. The guy took the road work out of the budget for ten years. It really wasn't noticed because it looked like some relief in the budget. Now they're spending over a billion dollars fixing their streets. You can't drive through Tulsa. There's over 200. Pro We're bad here. We're the orange barrel town. But there's over 200 projects. Our, our construction is coming from an increase in traffic along I-40 and subsequently on the streets around there. But See, I came here in 1997. There had been a little bit of things. that There had been some things. I think Walmart was there. Maybe there was, a, there was something else that was there. They hadn't done any of the Lake Walmart stuff sure. across Coulter. There were some other things, but I remember McDonald like like Walmart. <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that. It was something. It was something along those lines, and 
there, it, you're right. There was not a lot there, but I drive up culture now and I just can't believe it. There was a blockbuster video, rest in peace. And there was another <laughs> blockbuster video, rest in peace. And True. Uh, then, but the whole thing took off. So when we talk about strategic visions for communities and people getting behind them at an early stage, it's very difficult sometimes to see and project into the future and to, to look forward to what might, what it could be. Right. So there's a sense of idealism and you need idealism in order to make sure that ensure that there's, that the reality that you get to in 30 years is the one that you wanted to be at. Um, so that being said, uh, are you trying to say people have to wait and be patient? You know, here, yeah, I wasn't patient. So I got into the city work and I said, so what, why aren't we building more streets and other things? So these developers come in and they sat me down. They showed me the stats on, for instance, Coulter and other streets where it's grown and, and said, look, we're financing everything we do for a period of about 20 years. The city's financing out of other tax dollars until it has a return that replaces those tax dollars from sales tax. You know, our city gets more every year in sales tax than we do in property tax. And that's really unusual. But again, it speaks to how regional our city is that a lot of people come here to shop. So actually, one of the reasons we gave, it was four or $5 million to Dalhart for the cheese factory, because they're coming here, spending their money, filling our coffers with sales tax money. And we knew regionally that we were supporting each other. We're, we're connected at the hip to Canyon. We're connected to so many towns be out here 50, 60 miles because they come here for medical. They come here for large shopping. They come here for SAMs. They come here for all those things that draw them in for, for vehicle purchases. Like I was in that business for quite a while, and they came here a lot of times. Um, it, it kind of, it, that speaks to exactly what Emerald College is doing, right? We sure. constantly, um, I can remember when, of course, I'm from here. I was actually here before both of you. I was born in 78, so I was here already. There you go. <laughs> um, but, I don't, of course, I don't remember that. But um, we that's kind of what we're seeing. It's like Emerald College. Doesn't it make sense that we have people come in, educate them, so they can make our community better? And not only that, if we're not just going to go associates and trade and, you know, can we send them on to WT because we are connected at the hip to where it's, it seems it's a natural progression. Absolutely. So we just keep giving back to both areas until, so we just see the growth all over. We do. We have to have it all over. And, you know, we're going to grow. Texas is growing by millions of people in the next decade. We just got to be sure that we manage that. Mm -hmm. and, and I am worried about infrastructure management. I tell you, uh, everybody that sees the orange barrels and we're, we voted on $90 million worth of work to the streets in Amarillo over a five or six year period. They won't do it all at once, thank goodness. So now with the trucks that are going cross country, let me give you some numbers that'll shock you. In 2005, I was working, or I'm sorry, in 1989, I was working on the Leadership Amarillo course mm -hmm. where you go take that. And they told us that there were 20,000 trucks that went down I-40 every day. So one way or the other, somehow an average of 20,000 semi-trucks, mm -hmm. big semi-trucks. So there's obviously a lot of small trucks and cars that go there too. But those big trucks really wear down the highway. Well, in 2005, when I first ran, I was told that number was now 40,000 trucks a day. And 
about three years ago when I was mayor, I was giving a program, and the guy from TxDOT raised his hand and said, Mayor, I need to correct you. It's no longer 40000 a day. You're getting peak days of 66,000 trucks down I-40 every day. And I said, oh, my gosh. Well, if you look at the deterioration, it isn't just here. It's all across the country. I-40 goes from, you know, we know it stretches through how many states. Right. We've really got to think about it as a country, how we rebuild infrastructure. We've got to think about it in Texas. The money, we send it to Washington. Washington sends it back to the state. And the state then sends it out to the communities to redo that. Those nine bridges that are being done on I-40 right now, so it's Pullman Road, Lakeside, Whitaker, um, and then Ross Osage, which is being done right now, uh, Arthur Street, Bell Street's been finished, Sansi Street's been finished, and then we had the one thrown in from the accident out there in Bushland. So if you just look at the change with that that was required because of heavy loads, right now you cannot go to the Department of Transportation and get a heavy load permit to carry a heavy load through Amarillo. So nothing over an 80,000-pound semi can come here. That means they go to non-attainment areas. What that means is where there's more emissions, they go to Denver and go across I-70, or they go south down I-10, and they hit areas that are non-attainment areas with higher pollution, and that's not good. We talked to the, we talked to the state, and we talked to the feds about transportation dollars, and we're getting money to replace all those bridges because simply one of those was getting to, several were getting to the point where you could have a catastrophic failure. Mm-hmm. And, and we had that in Oklahoma when the bridge fell into the river. Yes. We had it in Missouri when the bridge fell into the river. We talked to them, and they said, well, you'd go on the loop. And we said, pull up Google Maps. And they said, oh, my gosh, there's no <laughs> real loop around Amarillo. And there isn't. Now there will be, I think, the state's mm-hmm. finally getting the message that we've got to have a loop. But can you imagine 66,000 trucks a day being backed up? I said, you're going to have a river. You're going to have a river of trucks from here to Oklahoma and here to Albuquerque with any failure of any of these bridges. But the point is that infrastructure is something we've got to keep reinvesting in. If we don't do it in our streets, we've got over 1,000 miles of streets in the city. And we're not, we've got them on the arterials. There's a plan that is seven to 10 years that you would resurface those, bring them back, clean things up, tidy them up. It's higher now, but it was when I was first mayor, it was $100,000 a mile. If we didn't do that, it was over a million dollars a mile to rebuild them. So if you don't take care of the mains, who would do that to their car or their home? Who would do it to their business? You'd never operate that way. You'd never, oh, you'd, you're not operating, you're just surviving. And if you go down our streets today, you see the deterioration that's just not going to stop unless we refresh them. A um, thousand miles of streets. I mean, that's a lot. How did, how did serving in the military, serving in a foreign country, how did that shape some of your ideas on community? Well, first of all, let's consider I was 17 when I went in. I was right out of high school a week. and I was 10 days out of high school. I went in on the delayed program, volunteered in April, got out in June, went in June 16th. I was a kid. It was shaping me in a way that I was just maturing as we all do with experiences that we have. There's no doubt that it shaped pushing me forward. My sister said you grew up. But I was a... 
I really had a fortunate role, if you can have a fortunate role. I was assigned as a crew chief. I was told at first as a, by a recruiter that I couldn't be a pilot. So, but I wanted to f be flying. And he said, no, you can't be on a crew that flies because you've got glasses and you just can't do that. And he fibbed, he didn't know. So I got to, I got to um, school, advanced training, and became what we called a door gunner on a Huey. And when I passed that, did great. I became a crew chief. So I had one helicopter I was in charge of, and my job was to keep that working. The joke about helicopters is that the definition of a helicopter is 10,000 parts all working together to kill you. And it was my job to keep that from happening. And so my job was to keep all those intricate parts. And as a 17-year-old boy that I thought I was a man, I had all the answers, I figured out real quick, I really have to be careful of this or I'm going to kill a whole bunch of people. That helicopter carried a crew and passenger load of 13. When we were evacuating people, we had as many as 25 on the ship. But you're, you had all those lives in your hand. You don't do that flippantly. You got your own life in your hand. And so it really matured me. And I had this fortunate situation when I got to Vietnam. I was assigned to a unarmed helicopter. It kind of shocked me at first. It was a medevac, a medical helicopter. So all we did is rescue wounded and dead for a year and a half. And that's all we did. We went out and picked them up. We had 25 ships in our company, and we evacuated the population of Amarillo in a year and a half, 189,000 people in our 25 ships. That is unbelievable. Can you, I mean, imagine now... Yeah. I don't. I my. I don't have a seventeen-year-old yet. Mine is twelve, but even in five years, they would yeah. do it. You know, here's know. the thing about our country and about our people is, um, we made mistakes over there. We made horrible mistakes, and we didn't get in and get out. I've studied. I took a class in college at UNM about Southeast Asian history afterwards, and studied a lot. I've I've gone back and really studied the history of what this is. And one of the things that is important is that we follow a just war theory if we're going to go to war. We haven't done that. We haven't learned that it doesn't do us a bit of good to go impose our culture on another country. It doesn't work. They got their own culture. We can't better them by dismissing their culture and imposing our culture. And we've got to learn that. If we have a severe thing we have to go in to really protect our interests, fine. But we got to stop the small things if we aren't dedicated to getting in and getting out. That's and we have to have a reason. But we have to get in and we have to get out. Because who suffers if we don't? The peasants. That's what we saw. I mean, we picked up, we picked up everybody in this helicopter. We picked up South Vietnamese soldiers. We picked up the Thais. We picked up the Korean soldiers. But we picked up Vietnamese civilians that were wounded, and uh, it just didn't go away. We picked up, we picked up North Vietnamese. I was hoisting off the side of a mountain in the rainstorm at night one day, and we picked up a North Vietnamese colonel who they wanted to interrogate, and he was wounded. We picked him up. I still remember getting shot at as we departed. It made him sit up and look at it as we were departing. We were saving his tail, and uh, they were shooting at us trying to. It was crazy. But, the, you know, war doesn't make sense. You can't explain it with one little interview for 10 minutes. <laughs> you just can't do it. Mm. But the point is we better be thinking about it more because it's lives at stake. 
millions of people suffered after we politically departed. We didn't depart militarily. We could have done that, gotten in and gotten out, but we weren't allowed to. There were days where I was shot at and could not return fire. We didn't fire much out of our ship, so I need to explain that, but we were being mortared, and we had three ships. Could have gone up, and one was a gunship, and, I mean, they were coming out, and they were shooting mortars over the top of this base on the other half of the base. And we were told if we went up and shot at them, it was a Vietnamization area, and we would be court-martialed. Mm. So they continued to shoot at our guys. Well, you can't put people in it. I was on the phone with Mayor Nelson the other day, and she had mentioned we were talking about developing uh, the future kind of taking on this, sure. this next role which is rolling out the revitalization of the downtown Amarillo area into other communities and other portions of sure. our city like North Heights you know all that you know all the, the names of the, the communities but one of the things that she said that that, that really struck me was that that the, it's the city of Amarillo is is wanting them to come up with their own strategic vision of what they want to be well, they have to because they have to invest in it or they have to draw investors in. You know, I still remember a lady in 2005 really upset at a council meeting we had. We had them out in the community, Deborah McCartney, the mayor then. We went around to schools and hit all four quadrants of the city, and this lady was just hollering at us about her Piggly Wiggly being gone. And the Piggly Wiggly is not there, and you guys got rid of the Piggly Wiggly. Of course we didn't. But the point is that government doesn't control that. Private investment does. You have to make it attractive. So the thing the city's got to do is make sure there are good streetlights and there are good streets and there are good sidewalks and other things that weren't here. Back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, you didn't have to put in sidewalks. We have hundreds of miles of streets that have no sidewalks on them in the older parts of town. But do you know what that costs? We put in a sidewalk from... Georgia to Western on 3rd Street, North 3rd on one side of the street, eventually both sides of the street, and it was it was about four times the cost of a sidewalk anywhere else because when you retrofit them, you got to put in retaining walls and all this other stuff because of the current construct, you know, the current housing there. It would be unbelievable to do that, but we've got to figure out how we step by step start to deal with that as we did with paving all the streets. There were a lot of streets until uh, Senator Seliger was mayor. I think he and, and Trent Sizemore really pushed to get all the streets paved in Amarillo. They weren't all paved. Um, so it trying to fit the take care of what was built 40 years ago and bring it up to this point where it's as attractive. You know, the bottom line is it's cheaper for investors to go to a new area, plow that dirt, develop it, put in streets, and we put up lights and we move on. So that's why I think it's so neat that we are, we're seeing new businesses in the really historic, yep. unbelievable buildings yep. that are downtown. I just think um, we get so happy every time we hear something like that is just so neat. And yeah. they're, you know, they're keeping the integrity of the, these buildings are so amazing. Have you seen the bar field under construction? Yes. So that's a project that really started 16 years ago. And it hit some bumps in the road. It had some problems, but it's happening now. Mm -hmm. I, I'll make a prediction. The Herring Hotel, 10 to 15 years from now, after other growth in our city and downtown, someone will tackle that. And I hope and I believe that the top four or five, six floors will be condos. And then there'll be a boutique hotel under that. And then three floors of public area that will be so magnificent, just renew, renewed, but 
identical to what it was in the 30s and 40s. That would be... Big grand ballrooms, a basement. But but we have to take it step by step. You know, that hotel, the Skirvin in, in Oklahoma City, is a sister hotel to this Herring building, sort of. It's right. same kind of architecture, a little fancier there with the turrets out front. But the fact is that it will cost twice to fix that what it costs to build the embassy suites. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a reason. There has to be more growth for it to get a return on investment that it needs to make that investment or people won't come here. The other thing that we fight is the bankers won't make loans on those unless there's something comparable. Well, now we're building comparable things from these incentives we've had. It would be easier for the next people beyond us to get to get bank financing for projects that they just couldn't. That's one of the things that stopped the Barfield building over and over, one of the things. Mm-hmm. But now it's finally going. they got to be persistent. And I think the Herring Hotel will be something magnificent in 10, maybe 20 years. But That would be amazing. I remember you pointing that building out to me while we were standing on that top of the parking garage. Mm-hmm. You got special access yeah. to the uh, top of the parking <laughs> garage. <laughs> uh, it's going to be really something, uh, being able to, the kiosks there and the openings were really cool. Uh, but uh, to the point, um, whenever you were in the car business uh, from 19... 19- well, I started in Albuquerque in 76, right 76, out of college. Okay, to... Uh, 209. Well, to really to now. I've had a little lot since, okay. yeah. So that's a that's a unique business because so many people come in, like you said, from all over the panhandle looking for a car. Sure. So your 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 ability to understand that Amarillo was a, was a major hub of the region and that it was central to the vital to the vital interests and strategic economic interests of this region. To uh, I don't know if that's a dri- was that a driving factor in your decision to become more active in the community and to be engaging in these issues because you saw the relevance of it. And as a, I couldn't take credit for all that. I think that really what happened is as things presented themselves, like the Dalhart Cheese Factory, I saw pretty quickly the reality of they were paying money into us to build that fund. Why don't we share a little bit back that'll help build our community, expand traffic. There's an unbelievable amount more revenue that flows into the state. And it all has to come through Amarillo to get to the rest of the state from up there. So I think I had a a reality check a little quicker than some may not, uh, may not have and realize that we're all in this together. You just can't avoid that. And there's something that I see because you and my dad, all of these people are in the same. My dad, I should like him more praise, Lenny Sadler. But yeah. um, you guys have something that's, um, it's kind of hard to define, but I'm definitely going to do it. It's called more of a practical intelligence. It's not necessarily that you're like, oh, the most educated and that, but that's not it. But you get life. Like you understand you're successful at doing what makes sense to make more people successful and to grow things. And that's, I mean, I just see that. Yeah, but younger people do this too. You know, I, I don't like this criticism or pigeonholing people. I don't like, I don't like the millennial term. You're pigeonholing people. And then you put all these parameters. It's silliness. Now there's a new, what is it? Generation X or Y or whatever. Yes, it's the generation X. Yeah, whatever. So. They're, they're going to get it. And, and if you look back at something practical that happened in our city with the election to have a stadium, well, does everybody know without those age group working so hard, on without that age group working so hard, on, we wouldn't have this. It wouldn't be happening if 
Megan, some other people that got involved hadn't gotten involved. Don't pigeonhole me and don't pigeonhole young people. (laughs) I love that because we actually, I think on our last one, we actually talked about it. We talked about the idea that, oh, everybody's in this and we're stereotyping. So so what do we got to do? We got to divide you by you were born 1950. Is it September 5th or before? (laughs) What day is it that you become one of those? Dr. Dr. Beth and I have this issue because she's uh, a number and I'm another number. And uh, I'm just kidding. I'm 38. And so uh, Beth and I are part of Generation X. Nobody really knows what to what to, what to call us. It's like a seven-year period between uh, Generation... No, it's not gener- we're not Generation X. Yes, we are. We're the Xers. Okay, we're the Xers. But there's are another we? name for us. Right, because, because we're, we're in between. Yeah, we're kind of like half millennial, half... Because we technology, but we're not full on like the... Right. I mean, it's... And I mean, again... My hey, biggest I was thing. doing punch cards in 1973 <laughs> in college in Albuquerque. Though, you know, so yeah. I could learn the rest of the computers. I don't want to now. <laughs> but, but all just, this stuff. I mean, what yeah. would you say? What would you say to someone who's 85 years old and looking down, uh, looking down at someone who's 18 years old who has every right to to exercise their franchise and says something along the lines of. You don't have the experience to vote. Well, okay, so I didn't get to vote till I was out of Vietnam. Think about that. So I couldn't have a drink legally till I was 21. I got out and I was 20, and I was 20 for nine months before, eight months, eight and a half months before I turned 21. They had just voted to lowering the voting age, but it didn't take place until after I was 21. So I couldn't vote, couldn't have a drink. And you know the worst one? They made me go sign up for the draft. Because I wasn't old enough to sign up for the draft when I went in at eight, at seventeen, you know, it was such silliness. And so, but I do think there are some things that we should wait until until you're eighteen. I just don't think that lowering the voting age to sixteen is practical or sensible, or you know, I just don't. Until you you really the only way you could be independent then is you were emancipated, and nobody really is unless they're in some tragic situation. Um, I, I just don't think that's necessary. And I did just fine not vote until I was 18 or until I was 21, but that was just the rules. Even at 21, though, there are still people that will criticize and be critical of individuals that are younger. Well, um, you can't get anybody to go vote anyway. I'd take more voters <laughs> in most cases. I mean, we, we survive on basically 10% of our population going to vote. That's bad. If young people aren't getting involved and getting, I wish they would. They might get some old people off their tails and get them out to vote. It's not representative government. It's not. I mean, we know, though, that that is, think about this. So I'll never forget this video over in Iraq after we had freed Iraq and they were still fighting in the streets. And I saw this video where this lady and this man, young people, you know, probably 20, 23 carrying a swaddled baby down the street, and there was fighting up about two blocks ahead. And she handed him the baby, and she ran across the street, went in, came out of the building with a purple thumb. She had voted. She ran back across the street. He handed her the swaddled baby. He ran across the street and came out of the building with a purple thumb. We don't have to do that. Then they ran away from the bullets to protect their baby. And we don't go vote. Yeah. It's funny because we actually, I was part of a discussion panel yesterday, and that was one of the topics we talked about was 
why aren't we voting? It's like we have this amazing opportunity and privilege, and we just take it for granted. But it requires that you get educated to go vote. And it requires that you put a little time in figuring out who they are. I don't care if you call your friend that's a lawyer and ask him which judges to vote for. That's what I do. I call a friend that's an attorney and say, which of these judges are good or bad? Who I don't know these people. Or call somebody um, that has been involved and just say, what do you think? And then do a little more research after that and see if you concur or not. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just normal thought process. but It just takes more education. So even if somebody is 18, 21, 35, even if they haven't gotten education, maybe they aren't supposed to like vote. I think that um, if you just go in blind and vote, I don't know that it it's is any worth, difference. No, it's, I don't think that's valid. I, mean, I, think, that's, I think Or if somebody is. tells you and you don't think it through yourself, you know, that's not valid voting. That's just being a puppet for somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple places you'll never know what somebody did in that swivel chair in the jury or behind that curtain where you go vote. And it's nobody's business what I do there. I do what I feel I have to do. But you got to get involved. So what would your message be to, uh, to, our, to our student body at Amarillo College uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to public engagement? You're, it comes you're already doing so much if you're trying to improve yourself going college but learn and don't I mean figure out if something's really right or wrong figure out I don't mean morally either I just mean whether the information you're getting is right or wrong go a little deeper find out challenge things before you make a decision certainly something as important as voting or what you're going to do with your life um, just you're not stumbling through life if you're in Amarillo College don't start just keep working at things Right. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us uh, today, uh, former Mayor Harpole. We really enjoyed getting to visit with you, Dr. Beth. Yeah, thank you. So Thanks glad for having you were me. Here. It's been great. It's good. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Sure. All right. That's it for today. Uh, we will definitely be seeing you guys again. Bye bye.